0: i Frank Ling and I'm Charles Lee and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Michael Summers will join us to discuss exoplanets. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and our world famous question of the week coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grok's Science Show. The recent announcement of planets found orbiting around the Trappist-1 star now adds to the growing pantheon of known exoplanets. How do we know about these distant worlds, and can any of them possibly support life? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Michael Summers. Professor Summers is a planetary scientist and professor of physics at George Mason University. He's the author of numerous scientific and public works on the topic, and his new release authored with Professor James Trafell, entitled Exoplanets, Diamond Worlds, Super Earths, Pulsar Planets, and the New Search for Life Beyond Our Solar System, explores this issue for a general audience. And uh, Professor Summers, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure to be here. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book, a certainly very timely book you've written regarding exoplanets. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic?
1: Well, I've been interested in planets pretty much all of my life since I was about six years old, and I got a telescope, and the first thing I saw in the sky was Saturn, which was, um, of course, you know, the planet with the rings, and it was pretty astonishing even in a small telescope. So I ended up getting a Ph.D. in planetary sciences studying the moons of Jupiter. And over the years, I I work with uh, outer uh, solar system NASA missions, uh, ultimately getting uh, involved in the the New Horizons Pluto uh, mission. And it seems like uh, as time has gone on, I've kind of moved further and further away from the inner planets to look at things further out. And the, the, the thing that has always sort of amazed me is how every single planet has its own distinct personality, its own, you know, its own story, its own uniqueness. Uh, and and the other thing is that every planet that we explore is surprising. Uh, we're kind of getting used to being surprised when we when we look at other planets. And then about 15 years ago, when they started uh, being able to to detect and, and characterize planets about the size of the Earth, uh, I got really interested because then I had a whole new slew of, of planets that I could compare to what I was studying in our solar system. And of course now, you know, with new planets being discovered every day, you know that's that's job security in a way. I mean, it's, it's just, it just will never catch up to the discoveries of trying to understand the the, the exoplanets, the, the the planets that are out there that are in some ways like what we see in, in our solar system, but in other ways just vastly different. And and w- with regard to the book, the the thing that that sparked our interest in writing the book was just the diversity of planets. Um, I mean, when I was young, there were nine planets, basically three classes, you know, terrestrial planets and giant planets, and then Pluto and and the dwarf ice planets, like Kuiper Belt objects. But now we see like a dozen different types of planets. I mean, not just different, but completely different types. You know, planets made mostly of water, planets made mostly of carbon planets that are close to the central star, planets that are distant, and and there's indications that there are many planets that are not even bound to to, uh, stars gravitationally. So just the diversity is overwhelming and I I wanted to try to share that with the public um, in in some sort of organized way. And it's really a challenge because every few months we discover not just dozens of our planets but new categories of planets. And so the book kind of grew out of that that attempt to t- just try to organize our thinking about the planets that we see out there.
0: Before we sort of get into all, all the different planets out there, how is it that we've been able to uh, discover these new planets now that growing up, the ones we can see through a telescope?
1: Yeah, well, detecting and characterizing planets around distant stars is, is really a challenging uh, endeavor. Uh, and Basically, planets shine by reflected light, and so if you're looking at a star in the sky and hoping to see a planet around that star in reflected starlight, you've got a big problem because the star is about 10 billion times brighter than the planet. So detecting planets directly is incredibly hard. But over the past decade and a half, we've been able to come to develop technologies that allow us to do that indirectly. One is to look at the tug, the gravitational tug, of planets as they go around the star. They move the star a bit, they accelerate the star, and we can measure that movement of the star now with very sensitive spectrometers. And from that movement, we can deduce the, the 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 mass of the planet and its orbital period uh, and its distance from the star, and and that's called the radial velocity technique. And that was one of the most powerful techniques that, that gave us our first few hundred planets around other stars. And and then the, the the technique that sort of overwhelmed the radial velocity technique is the transit technique, where we look uh, at stars and. And detect the slight dimming of the starlight when a planet that's bound to that star moves in front of it. Now that dimming is very small, typically, you know, one percent or less. But with modern technology, we can we can measure that pretty easily. In fact, we can measure things a uh, hundred times uh, smaller than that. So. Using that technique called the transit technique, we've been able to, to um, detect several thousand additional stars. And the Kepler telescope, uh, it's a space telescope that's designed just to look at a small section of the sky in the, in the Cygnus constellation and look for that dimming of the light when planets go in from the stars, has, has been the, you know, the most successful exoplanet um, Detector so far, um, and, and last uh, time I checked, I think we were up to close to 3,600 exoplanets that have been discovered and confirmed by second observations. So, if you work out the 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 rate, we're discovering new planets at the rate of one to two per day, and that's pretty incredible—whole new worlds. And um, so, it, it's um, it's challenging, but we're now doing
0: it routinely. Is there any uh, inclination that there were so many worlds out there uh, to be discovered? Well, when I was in graduate school in the mid-80s, we really had no idea.
1: We just didn't know one way or the other. We had theoretical models of star formation that suggested that there should be planets around other stars, but we really just didn't know. And so finding the first few planets in the early 1990s, even though they were rather bizarre, was... Sort of profound to all of us planetary scientists because we we were, we got a glimpse that that there were a lot of them out there. I think that most of us, though, even those of us that were optimistic about planets elsewhere, have been surprised at just the sheer numbers that we're finding. Um, right now, we're, we're estimating that there's probably an average of ten planets per star in our galaxy and that could be a lower limit. So our solar system may be sort of average in that sense. Uh, so I, that's to me, even though I've studied planets all my life, that was still astonishing that there are just so many of them. And then if we start including those that are not bound to stars that are floating around in the interstellar medium, that number may go way up. It may be much larger than than the ten stars per I mean, 10 planets per star so uh, i I think we've all been astonished. we've all been surprised by the by the numbers that we found.
0: You mentioned these interstellar planets, but does it, that actually sort of stretch the definition of uh, what a planet is or what what actually is a planet
1: yeah, that's a really, really good question, and of course the the thing that Initiated that di- that discussion was the the demotion of Pluto from from planethood in 2006 uh, by the International Astronomical Union, and um, that caused a fair bit of controversy. But it did introduce the question. The the good question, the important question, is what constitutes a planet? Does a planet have to orbit a star to be a planet? I mean, does an object have to be in orbit around a star? Or what happens to a planet that's in orbit around a star that's kicked out into the interstellar medium? Or how big does an object have to be to be a planet? Does it have to be round to be a planet? So I think the scientific community is still trying to refine our definition of planet that's inclusive enough to include objects, say, like the Earth or Mars that are thrown into the, the interstellar medium. And yet, still, because of what they are intrinsically, they're still planets. But we, we're still refining that, that definition.
0: Now that we've seen all these different planetary systems, has that changed our theories about how solar systems are formed, or what have we learned from finding all these planets?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's refined our, our theories of how how stars are formed and how planets are formed uh, in, in a disk of gas and dust that orbits the star as its first uh, igniting hydrogen burning, hydrogen to helium fusion. But it, I, I think that the thing that it has been most, I guess, challenging to our theories is, again, the diversity of planets. You know, we, we're used to thinking about terrestrial planets like, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars as being rocks and metals, but we were not prepared for planets that are made mostly of water. I mean, just think about that, a planet two or three times the mass of the Earth, but 90% water. Uh, Our models did not predict that kind of world. Water on the Earth was uh, a secondary effect. It came in from comets and asteroids, mostly, after the Earth formed. So how do you get a planet that's all water, or how do you get a planet that's all metal, uh, in fact, mercury is about 90 percent nickel and iron, and so you know that's a little bit of a challenge to to uh, to theoretical, theoretical models. And so there there are other extreme examples of planets out there that are even I guess more challenging. There's some objects that appear to be bigger than Jupiter, but less massive. And Jupiter is made up mostly of the lightest elements. So how do you get something like that? Um, so there are some mysteries out there that we, we we have not been able to completely explain with our with our theoretical models we've got some challenge some some mysteries that that I think are going to force us to to add some really new features to our theoretical models to be able to explain them
0: uh, you describe a number of these uh, bizarre planets but b- before we get into them how' how is it that we're able to tell what planets are made out of well our first I guess
1: deductions about the composition of planets comes from knowing how big they are, their radius, and then knowing their mass. And from those two things you can get their density, or the average density of the planet. And from that average density, then you can go out and say, well, what kind of materials, what kind of elements can I mix together to get something that's that big at that density? And sometimes the density, the average density is so low that You can't make the planets out of anything but very light elements like hydrogen or helium or or maybe oxygen and silicon, and sometimes the average density is so high that you have to have lots of metals like nickel or iron or maybe something else even heavier to make the planet. but, but that's very indirect. We don't have the direct measurements of the interior compositions of the planets just yet. But we are beginning to get measurements of the atmospheric compositions of the planets, and that's giving us some additional indications of what the, the composition might be like. When, when we use the transit technique to look at a Planet moving in front of a background star around its central star, we that light that shines through the atmosphere of the planet can be absorbed in ways that gives us uh, signatures of the kind of gases that are, that make up the atmosphere of the planet, and that gives us some additional information about its composition. But it, it's still a little bit of an indirect science, but it's a pretty powerful one because we know what the elements that that exist in the universe, and so when we have the, the size and, and the, the mass and so the density of a planet, we have a pretty good idea of how you can mix the elements together to get that kind of a uh, of a planet, so we can we infer the composition that way.
0: Again, in, in your book, you you talk about a number of the planets that have been discovered and and whose compositions have been inferred. Uh, which of these do you think is is perhaps the most surprising for you in terms of uh, how could could a world like that possibly exist?
1: Yeah, the, the, there are several that that to me seem really astonishing. The water planet is, is one that I find just amazing. Um, I mean, it. it at first blush it might sound kind of boring that you know your planet is several times bigger than the earth but mostly water and so it's just water from the top all the way down but even a planet like that is going to have a lot of structure inside of it because water undergoes phase changes at different pressures and temperatures so you might have an onion skin type layer of water in different phases as you go from the outside to the inside of the planet and that's a that was a surprise to me the other kind of planet that I, I find that, very intriguing is the these rogue planets that that I mentioned the, these planets that um, that are floating around in between the stars. And again, at first blush, you might think, well, they're cold because they're far from a central star, and so they're dead. But that's not necessarily true. Um, We learned from the New Horizons mission to Pluto that Pluto, even though it's far away from the sun, is still geologically active. And the surface is very young, only a few million years old in some areas. So planets don't have to be close to a central star to be uh, interesting to be geologically active to have atmospheres, um, and and another thing that has has kind of slowly pervaded the, the thinking about the diversity of planets and the the uh, the look the, the search for life elsewhere is that subsurface oceans are probably common in in among the planets in our galaxy. Like we know that there's a subsurface ocean and three of the moons of Jupiter, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto each have oceans underneath an icy crust that's larger in volume than all the, the, the water on Earth. And then we have Titan and Enceladus around Saturn that have a subsurface ocean. So oceans may be and deep oceans may be common and that, that has been a surprise. I think that has implications for the search for life elsewhere partially because we now believe that life on Earth originated in the deep ocean near, near hydrothermal vents and recently we've been able to find fossils of organisms that date back to 3.8 billion years and these are fossils of iron-eating bacteria that, that lived you know, soon after the Earth formed. So if, if a similar type of process happens elsewhere, these ocean worlds, whether they're covered with ice or just all, you know, mostly water, they may be really good places to look for life, to, to search for you know, the, the signatures of, of both simple and complex life. And, and, and there are other types of worlds, too, that are, that are surprising and challenging. Um, we have some planets, like the TRAPPIST-1 planets, that appear to be tidally locked uh, to, their, uh, to the central star. In other words, they all show the same face. To the, to the star, like the, the Moon shows the same face to the Earth as it goes around the Earth. And that seems to suggest that you, know, you have a hot day side and a cold night side, and the temperature range may be too broad to be habitable for life as we know it. But then if you look more closely, you find that around the terminator, right, where uh, the Sun just sets, there's a habitable zone that may be like an annual ring around the planet where life could originate and evolve. So it's, you know, every, like I say, every planet we discover raises up, raises new, you know, possibilities for life, possibilities for for diversity of these objects that we just didn't expect.
0: Apparently one of the exciting things about the TRAPPIST-1 was that there, was, there were several of these planets, three of them, like, that were thought of as the habitable zone of the system. Are number of these planets looking more like possible for life? Oh, that, those are several big questions there. Well, the TRAPPIST-1 system, it's,
1: you know, its discovery was just recently announced, so we're just now you know, looking at it very carefully. And three of the planets do appear to be uh, at the right distance from the central star that you could have stable liquid water on the surface. But that criteria uh, may not be broad enough for life. For instance, you could have a planet further out than those if it had a thick atmosphere, it would have a greenhouse effect that would warm it up. And then it would be uh, habitable or it would be uh, in a situation where you could have liquid water stable on its surface. So the the, the green zone, the habitable zone is is not a really good quantitative criteria for habitability. You may be able to have habitability far outside that that green zone with the, the right atmosphere holding the heat in. Now, jumping to the search for that life, that's, that's another challenge because we're, we, we don't know what the life is like, so we have to kind of make the assumption to start with that life is something like us. And which is you know organic chemistry needing energy and liquid water and raw materials, but life as we know it on Earth has certain chemical signatures, what we call biomarkers, like the oxygen we breathe is a bio uh, is a marker of of uh, photosynthesis in the atmosphere of the Earth, and we have other gases in the atmosphere of the Earth like methane, nitrous oxide. These are gases that that don't survive long in the atmosphere if you don't have life continually replenishing those gases. So to search for life on, on planets like TRAPPIST-1 system or other planets, you you want to look for these chemical signatures that suggest life, at, again, as we know it. You want to look for combinations of methane and, and maybe oxygen or nitrogen and water and ozone that look like might have been produced by, by uh Biology by photosynthesis or by organic life. Of course, there could be types of life out there that use different chemicals and produce different uh, chemical byproducts. And since we don't know what that life is like, looking for it is kind of um, a stretch for our imagination. Uh, Nonetheless, we're trying to come up with what you might want to search for if the life was not like us. And we have some clues. Um, for instance, if you look for complexity, things that are not natural, uh, look for gases in the atmosphere that may not be related to life as we know it on Earth, but yet don't naturally exist together in in a in a, in a gaseous environment without uh, chemically evolving, and so again' it 's hard it 's very non specific because we don 't know quite how to do it yet it 's kind of like walking through um, a forest blindfold and trying to find a particular tree but you can 't see it and and so we we 're really struggling with that you know how do you do, how do you search for a life that 's different than us I mean you could go to really extreme examples like silicon based life. Um, there was an episode in the the Star Trek series about an organism that was based upon silicon, and it it, uh, burrowed through the interior of a planet and ate rocks inside of it. Well, how would you detect something like that on a distant planet? Would you look for its chemical residues or its chemical byproducts, its waste products? And what would they be? We just don't know. So my sense is that we're looking in ways to detect life as we know it, but most likely, life out there is going to be different than us. And so, I, again, my sense is that we're going to be very surprised when we do find life. It's not going to be like us. Again, that's a guess. It's not a scientific statement. Um, and part of that just comes from you know studying planets and, and realizing that every time we study a new planet, we're surprised about just about everything. And so I, I guess I'm getting used to be surprised, and, I, and that's kind of what I expect now.
0: Keeping in mind that surprises are, are yet to come, uh, what do you think might come from uh, the future? Oh,
1: that, that's really a difficult question to answer. We we just don't know what we're going to find next. Uh, finding seven Earth-sized planets around a, a cool star to me was pretty surprising. It's something I, I never would have expected. But that means that there are lots of systems out there that are like that because there are many cool stars like that. We call M-class stars, stars that are about half the surface temperature of our sun. And so that means that the number – I mean, it probably signifies that the number of planets out there is larger than we have been estimating. Um, what's going to come next? Gosh, um, I really don't know. I, I I'm looking for, like I say, signatures of complexity. Uh, It seems like everywhere in the universe where you have lots of energy flowing through a system, you generate complex structures. They could be chemical structures, or biological structures, or electromagnetic structures. But but you get these kind of things. And when you have a star shining on a planet, that's that's a sort of the the perfect example of energy flowing through a system that would generate complex structures, or complex entities. But but again, we just don't know. We're we're really you know in in the mode of discovery right now. Everything we find out there seems to. Seems to be a surprise and open up new questions and new avenues of thinking, and um, it's pretty darn exciting. But again, we we just don't know what's around the next corner.
0: So uh, we'd have to wait and yeah. see.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just cannot imagine having a better and more exciting career than than what I have. Um, I I've been fascinated with planets, like I said, since I was six years old, and it, it's been a many times it's been hard to stay in the field because of budget issues or getting jobs and stuff like that. But now, just to just to be a part of this is just exciting beyond belief. Uh, I mean, I'm not out there trying to cure cancer or, or help the Earth become more sustainable, but I, I am kind of helping in a very minuscule way, helping humanity see what our universe is like. And it's much different than what we used to think. It's much richer in, in things and in phenomena and in, in surprises than I think just about anyone imagined. If you can imagine a planet that's really bizarre, say so there's only one in a million chance of that planet being out there, what that means is that in our galaxy, there's a million of those planets. Yeah. That's the kind of numbers you're talking about. So just about anything you can imagine that the laws of physics and chemistry allow, we'll find. I mean that's bizarre.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, gives validity to all the science fiction uh, writers out there that maybe a planet they're proposing is out there somewhere. <laughs> Almost certainly,
1: uh, part of this next book we're writing is based uh, on uh, another story that Isaac Asimov wrote called Nightfall. It only so, became nighttime once every ten thousand years right. because the planet orbits several stars. And now we found planets like that. We found planets that orbit three stars. We found two examples of a planet in a four star system. So yeah, you imagine it and it's almost like you'll find it if you
0: keep looking long enough. <laughs> Pretty cool universe out there. It sure is. Well, I think that certainly comes across in the new book, and I certainly hope people take a look at it. It's called uh, Exoplanets, Diamond Worlds, Super Earths, Pulsar Planets, and the New Search for Life Beyond Our Solar System. And our guest today was uh, one of the authors, Professor Michael Summers. And uh, Professor Summers, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, My pleasure.